Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Real Cyber Talk podcast. Today, we're joined by CISO of Netasia, Andy Ash. Uh, 25 years in IT, 10 years in security. Yeah. Go on, give, us a, give us a 15 seconder on your, on your background. 15 seconder. So, so I'm currently the CISO of Netasia, like you say. Um, I've been with Netasia Security staff in Manchester for the last six years. Uh, but prior to that, I worked in fintech, I worked in development, um, performance, uh, but infrastructure and service delivery was how I kind of got into security. So, yeah, it's uh, done most, had most job titles in IT. Perfect. And, 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 you know, I guess this is, I met Andy a few weeks back now. Um, and I guess one of the things that we've spoken about quite a lot since then, I think, is, is artificial intelligence. It's quite topical at the moment, um, although I think you've got your opinions on the fact that it's not necessarily a new phenomena. Um, why don't you just start by giving us a bit of an insight into your take on AI and we'll see where that takes us. Yeah, so I mean, my, my experience of using artificial intelligence, particularly machine learning, is with Netsphere. Um So we started out six years ago as a, as a bot management company looking to solve what are essentially very complicated problems of malicious actors on, on people's websites. So we look at the general bot cases like uh, web scraping, scalping, uh, fake account creation, account takeover, basically things that lead to fraud on, 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 on big corporate websites, on, on, on big retail websites, on big ticketing websites. So that's 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 our back that's our background. Um, so yeah we're six years old so the hype cycle is probably now um, but I know from our experience that we've been deploying AI to the wild uh, for, for our customers for, for six years. And it's existed before then as well. Um, we spoke about this recently. Um, it's not necessarily new. It's not necessarily um, the most uh, relevant in all cases. And again, we can come on to that. Uh, but it is the most spoken about thing that I've ever seen in 25 years in IT. It is the most emotive subject. Everybody yeah. who talks about how AI will affect your life, your business, um, the way that we make money, the way that we spend money. Mm. Um, it, it, there is a huge amount of emotion attached to the way that people talk about that. And I think that's because there's a vision of the world that is the kind of droid army taking over and, you know, humanity becoming, you know, less important. And then there's the kind of utopian view that we'll all be able to retire yeah. um, and go on to explore the universe. Um, you know, around the back of AI. So there's, there's, a, there's just that broad spectrum and, there's a lot of people in between. And, and this isn't a security wave at the moment, is it? This is a, this is a societal wave yes, that security is getting getting wrapped up in. Yeah. How much how much has that conversation changed though in the last year? Because you know, obviously, new conversations about legislation and about mm. um, the rules of how we engage with AI and new phobias are, are obviously coming up. Has that actually affected the conversations that customers are having with you? I think people are much more aware that when we use the phrase AI, that there is a set of things they might want to do to understand what it is that we do better. Yeah. Um, the majority of people that come to Netsphere, and in fact any security business, come because there's a problem that needs solving. So there is an attack that needs mitigating, there is uh, visibility that is lacking that needs to be added in. Yeah? Um, but um, uh, you say you do with AI, I think now there's a little bit more focus on the efficacy and actually what the so the, all the stuff with the LOMs has obviously been driving this kind of AI hype cycle. Um, is is really a, a sorry, just one second. You do edit, right? Yeah, you do edit, right? Good. Okay, cut. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, basically the LOMs um, have have broad sharp focus on 
what what data is going into them. Mm -hmm. So you know, the data privacy, data protection, not wanting to leak data through LLMs is a really big deal. And I think that's put a little bit more focus on vendors who've always had one though as part of the uh, as part of the solution. So it has changed. Um, and what you know, I don't mean for this to become a doomsday podcast, but certainly when we talk about AI in the security context, the conversation is a lot of it about the phobias mm -hmm. of AI, what it's capable of doing in the hands of or when wielded by attackers. Yeah. Um, what's your take on that? What what are what are some of the phobias that we need to be to be thinking about, if any? Yeah, I mean there's, there's we've we've done quite a lot of research into where artificial intelligence is being used to try and try and you know defraud business, so it's like it's our focus, right? Mm -hmm. um, we definitely know that capture farms, which are used by people trying to um, uh, crack accounts or, or scalp traders or whatever it might be, we know that capture farms now have AI counterparts that are cheaper and actually better at bypassing capture solutions. So that is something that we've done research on. So, you know, the attackers are already utilising this technology. What I would say is that the attackers will only employ AI at the point that the return on investment justifies that. Because the return on investment for the attacker may be quite low. If you think about scraping attacks, selling data off the back of that, ROI on that is a volume business. Um, do you want to add some complex and expensive artificial intelligence into that attack chain? Probably not. But where the ROI is huge, and you have secondary markets already, like ticketing, Traders, you know, there are secondary markets to sell these goods after they've been after they've been scalped. Then absolutely, you would want to. You know, people are paying the mortgages on the back of being able to, um, to to do these attacks. So yes, AI is absolutely possible where the ROI is justified. Definitely, Tom, you've been a been a, an ethical hacker for for a long time. I guess it wouldn't be too difficult for you to put yourselves in the mind of a of of, of someone with your skill set with a, a slightly different motive what, what's your take on on what this technology could do for 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 the malicious side of our industry i think um the the big one that that seems pretty obvious to me is highly highly tailored and, and specific social engineering campaigns that's that seems to be a massive massive area of opportunity, I think maybe partly because there's a lot of hype around generative AI specifically, but the idea that you can point a bot at somebody's online presence, which is, you know, massive these days, it can capture every personal piece of information about them and then create a very specific tailored email to them in mass, you know, target 100,000 staff business and each one of those gets a personalized email. I I can't, you know, I, I would imagine that the, that the, effectiveness of those campaigns of being able to actually get um, get payloads to land or get people to click on links or get whatever it is that the objective of that is to be successful is just going to exponentially increase the efficacy of like phishing attacks and and um, it's, it's funny you say that because if you take come away from the security world and step into the, the sales domain I know it's quite difficult for you technical people sometimes but but every business has sales teams and every sales team as part of this AI wave is looking at hyper-personalization of scale. You know, that's what we call it in the, in, the, in the sales world. How can we get maximum bang for our buck in terms of number of leads generated for, for little, as 
money put in. Um, and that comes down to how can we deliver things like emails that are highly personalized without necessarily having human input, right? And that's virtually the same. It's thing. exactly the same. <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. The, the tools absolutely cross over. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've, if, I have the threat research team and, and, and we do look at the fishing. We obviously necessarily mm. get the fishing and security business and we expect us to be patient. We have a little look at the, the backstory of some of these. They look like they're running outreach campaigns. If you ever respond, you know, it looks like it's a tech. And, and like we say, if you add into that, I mean, obviously the regenerative side of this is reasonably frightening. Yeah. Um, and everybody's now going to have to learn how to read and understand a generated, an LLM generated message. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like you would know that, you know, tells used to be that it, it didn't come across as English as the first language. Mm-hmm. That was a tell in a phishing email. Yeah. That's now not it. It's not recent. But if you if you add in deep fakes, so the, the my favourite sort of marketing re- outreach to me is is somebody sending me a video, and if this goes on the internet, I expect to get more of them. Yeah. But but basically, people do send me videos now. Yeah. I've seen a lot of really good deep fake videos, and that's not this year that that's going to be a problem and cheap enough to run the campaigns, but soon enough it will be. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could be getting videos of people who look like people you know. Yeah. Um, and it comes back to, um, in all of this, including what, what we do in that too, especially anything to do with fake accounts or mm-hmm. um, uh, credential stuff and account takeover, proof of life is going to be really important. Mm-hmm. That's going to be one of the, the, you know, in a world that is kind of dominated by individuals, that an identity can't be guaranteed. Yeah. How do you how do you know who you're speaking to? And mm-hmm. that's going to be a that is going to be a significant problem. Because if you if you get if you send me one of your many marketing emails, then um, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and but actually it's a video of you telling me that click on this link because you've got some offer, yeah, and it looks like you and it sounds like you, mm. but it's not you. And I click that link. Mm. That's that that is a very real threat. It's mm-hmm. not beyond the wrong realms of probability. It, it's interesting as well because so one of the most successful phishing campaigns that I've I've ever run just ripped directly from one of the most spammy looking campaigns that I've ever seen, which is that you just send everybody an email that just says, is this you and the link, (laughs) which if you then send somebody that and it actually is them, you know, superimposed on in whatever situation, those sorts of campaigns, I dread to think how much that's going to peak. And that's not very expensive when you can do that now, there's literally apps apps on your phone that can do that in like yeah. in a matter of seconds. So I would imagine the impact of that is ridiculous. And there's, and there's very little you can do as well. You, you know, there's, there's sort of technical, um, there's technical things you can do to prevent things like phishing emails. But when we're talking about LinkedIn messages, you know, and all these other different mediums that you've got for, for contacting people, you know, there's not an awful lot you can do as a security team within a business. And then we go off onto a tangent to talk about whether we think security awareness training works Mm-hmm. You know, for the majority at the moment, because you know you'd like to think that if you've got a solid security awareness training program, that simply just needs updated and upgraded and to, to combat modern threats. But if you've not got something that <laughs> is working correctly for the threats we face today, are we going to have something that's, that's correct? Yeah, the there, there is a there's a lot of education. The other place that AI in attacks is is an interesting, um, really interesting is that. A lot of network and application attacks, so like DDoS, but lower level, uh, 
less uh, more complicated than the DDoS attack. So a lot of the sort of cred stuff in attacks mm. that we see actually come across as DDoS attacks. They look like yeah. DDoS attacks. Um, and the, uh, the there's two sides in that. There's the defensive, which we're, we're defending, and there's the attacker. And quite often the attacker runs out of either steam because uh, we're, we're defending and, and blocking, mitigating that, that threat. Mm-hmm. And they'll kind of run out of steam and the attack will stop. And maybe they'll start again in a bit. And that's because it's been run by a human. Right? And that human has to go to bed and eat. Mm. Um, and they have to uh, buy, uh, you know, source the resource to actually you know, maintain. Because normally these attacks are coming mm. from hugely diverse data centers, you know, proxy networks, residential proxy networks. And they have to source that and pay for that or steal it or however they're actually uh, attaining those resources. And eventually they just run out of steam and then they'll try again in a couple of weeks. What AI might add to that is as the coordination of these attacks is that they might never stop. Yeah. And that is that that is that is a frightening thought. That is something whereas you know the majority of, of these attacks will be being blocked at WAF, at bot management, mm. etc. And you, you've got your defensive depth, but at some point somebody will get through. There will be people, humans in the loop, stopping this and writing modules and doing all the software that's, that's so important. And at, at what point do they have a break? Mm. Well, it's quite often when the attack stops. Mm-hmm. You know, we're already under under uh, resourced in, in security. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the the idea of the non-stop attack that continually evolves, that's kind of the terminate. It's not term, it's like the ball. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah, it's like kind of like the unseen enemy that, that it just starts and never stops. Yeah, yeah. nobody knows why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like you yeah. can't tell them what the, the machine can't tell you what its return on investment is, but it's just been set going the longer it runs and more money it makes from attacks. So. But the, the optimistic part of me wants to say this is just the next the evolution of the cat and mouse game, right? Yes. Where, um, yes, the attack will go on forever, but the defense will go on forever. Yeah. You don't have to have people on call 24 7 in order to you know orchestrate your response plan you you've got that system in place and it just executes in the background um, and yeah i think i think the the idea that we can hand a lot of that responsibility off and burn less people out means that we can start actually focusing on some of the problems that ai maybe can't solve as a security team at the moment it's just being wasted doing things that yeah, absolutely exactly. can't be automated i think that that is absolutely the opportunity for businesses but securing vendors and security people in those businesses is exactly that. It's using the AI to get people into a more strategic role. Um, there, were lo- there was loads of phrases uh, all this year. So out of the uh, cockpit into air traffic control. Yeah. You know, there's a load of there's a load of stuff about how um, AI should be enabling people. Um, you know, in the data sets are not human readable anymore. Well, mm-hmm. never have been, but they're mm-hmm. not human readable now. So that there's always been an element of curation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's better if that curation is done using, you know, language models or or um, anomaly detection, whatever it might be, yeah. and present that information up in a way that humans can actually make strategic decisions on the back of it. Definitely, yeah. and I guess that that forms a nice little segue into staying with the topic of AI. But as as we sort of see businesses rushing out to adopt this technology, and as we've already alluded to here, you know, there's a big difference between. LLMs, machine learning, and all these other different things that fall into this bucket that is artificial intelligence. Um, is there anywhere that you can see on face value that we really AI shouldn't be touching, and that, 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 it, that it shouldn't be? Replacing? Yeah. So I mean, there's there's an ethical aspect to this, um, and there's a data protection aspect to this. Um, 
Well, what I would say is from, from experience, AI is actually expensive. So if you don't need AI to solve the problem, if you could solve the problem by writing something on a piece of paper, you wouldn't use AI, right? Now, a lot of the problems we're trying to solve don't look like that, so, mm -hmm. you know, aren't that simple. But if there is no reason, there's no um, value, if the problem is, is already solved properly, um, then AI isn't required. Um, AI may not be required where, um, essentially, efficacy, uh, where human efficacy is perceived as better than the, 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 the AI. Now, uh, we've spoken about this before, why, why AI is being held to a higher standard of efficacy than humans are. Um, but in kind of very niche cases, so, you know, doctors and decision trees, doctors and AI, there's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a difference. So your expert systems have been in place in, in medicine for decades, right, mm. that help people make decisions based on, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know, uh, but ba based on symptoms, based on uh, presentation of, now, AI, AI might not be relevant to use in those situations just because of the appetite of the patient to be diagnosed by someone who isn't human. Mm -hmm. And that seems reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, I think what that gets in the way of is, um, well, one, the AI is probably better at diagnosing than doctors are. Mm -hmm. uh, doctors make bad decisions. Mm -hmm. um, but also the, the, um, the throughput that you can get from the automation of doing this should be mean that services are available to more people. It's, it's, a, very, it's a difficult balance. Yeah. But I can understand that you might not want to go into a doctor surgery, speak to a, a robot, and this is like terrible imagination time. Speak to a robot and the robot says, okay, you need to take these pills. I can't imagine my mum doing that. Mm. I, can't, I can't imagine that. So, I saw a really a, a similar thing when it, when it was uh, judges, mm. um, judges and sentencing, mm -hmm. and the the evidence, the stark evidence, actually, that, that, that shows and demonstrates the unconscious bias in sentences. This isn't necessarily on convictions, nothing to do with juries, but in terms of sentences dished out to people of different ethnicities, of different origins, etc. Um, and how sentencing could potentially be done by an AI that maybe doesn't have the same unconscious bias that inevitably our current system has, right? You know, the, the evidence is, is pretty damning. Um, so yeah, I think you've always got that, and the doctor thing is a very similar argument, right? It's like, is it definitely better in certain settings in terms of points of, of, of pros? Um, but inevitably, you're always going to get that kind of, you know, are we letting a machine decide what's wrong with someone or what 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 someone gets as a sentence or something, etc. And I think it's it's. I can only go, you can go back to people you know, right? Mm. And, and, and I, I know enough people that wouldn't yeah. accept that. Yeah. To know that it isn't going to be my doctor's <laughs> surgery anytime soon. No, no, no. Even if it, even if it was more efficient, uh, we, got, we got better results, it's not about to change yeah. any, anytime, anytime soon. Um, and then, like I say, well, the, we were talking about return on investment of AI, anywhere where you're not going to get a return on investment. And that could be as an attacker, right? You know, it's the same argument. So if you don't, if you can get what you need by running a whatever kind of attack, a web scraping attack or a, a account takeover, you can do that without AI. Why would you employ it? Because it costs you more money. You will get less return. Um, I think that the the interesting bit, and it's like the cat and mouse game. It's the, it's the war of attrition or the, the arms race, whatever we want to call it, security. I think as soon as we do 
start to use AI to block attacks, you'll see AI to try and get around that, mm. and it will just keep stepping up. So the use cases for not employing AI will reduce over time. Mm -hmm. I know you have a strong opinion on this topic. Spoke about it. <laughs> yeah, I think sort of going back to what you were saying about um, the the doctor surgery and the the people's people wouldn't be willing to do that, and you don't understand people wouldn't be willing to do that. I think, yeah, if you stick a robot in front of somebody, they're probably not going to trust it like they trust a human. But people already let AI run ridiculous amounts of their life. They let AI hand them the results that they get when they Google something. They let AI tell them how to spell a word. They let AI drive their cars and, and determine whether or not to take an umbrella when they leave the house every day. So the the ability to interweave AI into things, that it's, it's sort of trans, it's more hard to distinguish and hard to hard to understand that what you're looking at is a decision being made by some sort of impossible to interpret algorithm. Um, so being able to to get to that point I think is going to make people much more receptive to accepting AI as a component of their life or just not being aware that it is a component of their life. Now there are massive inherent risks in doing that because we've been shown you know you, you hear about the um, that delusional aunt of, you know, Christmas is coming up, that delusional aunt of Christmas that believes in the QAnon conspiracy theories because the algorithm has just forced them down this YouTube rabbit hole where they're presented this echo chamber of information over and over and over again. Um, so maybe we should be more transparent about it, but also maybe we shouldn't be quite so willing to just start calling everything AI and scaring everybody with this um, with this fact like it's some new revolution when, you know, as, we, as we've spoken about so far, it's it's just an intrinsic part of everyday life already. I, I, I agree completely, and I did say I have a limited imagination. So I can only imagine a, a robot doctor dispensing pills to my nanny. <laughs> <laughs> so that's as far as I can take it, I'm afraid. So well, conventional, like, <laughs> yeah. small one tap robot. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can take these. <laughs> so, a funny story we had a, uh, we, we seen. I can't remember where we were at a restaurant and, uh, and I'd never actually seen these robots that, that bring your food out. Uh, my two-year-old daughter was absolutely obsessed. My dad was obsessed, actually. <laughs> it's a Japanese restaurant, isn't it? Something like that, yeah, 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 yeah. Isn't yeah. it amazing how your dad and my two-year-old daughter... <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't there, so I think I would probably be amazed as well. And they're not, again, that's like, yeah, you will eat this. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so, last topic we wanted to cover today, we did this actually a couple of podcasts ago, um, about the cyber, Manchester cyber tech ecosystem. I mean, anybody that knows me and Tom will know how much we are big proponents of the Manchester cyber ecosystem with the um, construction of DISH as a um, digital information security hub, for anybody listening, as a um, an investment that Manchester City Council has made to back cyber in Manchester, back startups for cyber security in Manchester. and. How we definitely felt like the red carpet had been rolled out for us when we set off on this on this mission. But um, I wanted to cover it again today because you work for a cybersecurity company in Manchester that has been going for a little bit more than a year. Um, so you know, maybe this is maybe what we're seeing now is part of that legacy. Is part of what was actually started a long time ago, and obviously rich history with the likes of NCC Group and you know um, Paul Swiggers only out in Nutsford. Um, so, what's your take on Manchester as a as a cybersecurity hub? Um, you know, particularly if we look, and I know you've got a bit of a an understanding of the global 
landscape for cycling. Obviously, New York, San Francisco, Israel, Tel Aviv, big hotspots. Is Manchester in that category, or could it be? It can be. It absolutely can be. I mean, I've, I've lived in Manchester since I was an adult, basically. Um, and um, despite being a Liverpool fan, yeah, football wise, <laughs> I absolutely love. Manchester and, and it's, a, it's it's my life basically and it is incredible to watch the city grow as it has. I mean, I kind of left the city centre about ten years ago, give or take, um, and to keep coming back in now um, and and just seeing the the, the the mushrooming of businesses and the skyline and the money that's being put in is absolutely incredible. There is no reason why Manchester cannot be that kind of incubator mm. um, centre for not just cyber but all tech business. Mm -hmm. There's always been tech businesses in Manchester. I mean, yeah. you look at the universities, you know, and, and, and it might not be the tech that we recognise, but, you know, sort of clothing, manufacturing, textiles, mm -hmm. this was a world centre for, for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, that, I think it's part of the fabric of the city that, that there is innovation in. Um, so, you know, even when we started six years ago, there is there were lots of cyber businesses about. Um, there's a lot of angel investment for businesses who want to get up and, and dish is absolutely uh, brilliant um, for for you guys. Um, it was a bit late for us. Mm. We'd already been through that that kind of start line, that initial seed phase. Yeah, but I wonder how much of a how much of a, a part Netasia amongst others played um, when these decisions were getting made. Because there's obviously there is quite a few. Avecto is another one that I yeah. missed off as well. Avecto, um, there are a few. Um, yeah, so uh, Usecure. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're, they're Manchester-based yeah. startup. They're doing fantastically at the minute. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's plenty of there's plenty of examples. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I hope I hope we did play some part in getting that up and running. Um, I know that uh, our our board um, and founders are still really active yeah. in Manchester. Um, so yeah, uh, I hope we did play a part. I think it's interesting because you, you've got such a, an amazing set of people. Mm -hmm. you know, the universities are such big business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's yeah. what they are. You look at the buildings that they have now. You look at the, 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 you look at the National Computing Centre. You've got um, all of the old Unis campus that, that is a technical university. Like that mm -hmm. was a technical and still is a technical university. Um, so yeah, I think you know recruitment is reasonable and straightforward yeah um but also people would like to come and live here you know yeah. so if you if you need to bring people into the mm. city if you can't automatically find them that's yeah. unlikely but people want to move up to manchester so in that city we've had um all num all manner of people mm -hmm. living and living in the city center and i think that's really great that's it isn't it i mean it's, it's yeah it's two things isn't it it's funding and it's recruitment yeah and i guess that that from Nessia's standpoint or certainly from your standpoint within Nessia there's never been a, uh, um, any regrets in terms of no. the fact that this business is in Manchester and, no. and we've no. got access to recruitment and we've got access to funding. Exactly right um, and you know just to prove that point we started in the Northern Quarter and we've moved we've had an office in Beansgate and now we're down sort of at the, on the B Street mm. in Bonded Warehouse you know so we've jumped about we've never looked outside Manchester yeah. we've never you know, despite our founders actually being from uh, two different sides of the yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they're definitely a northern company, as you can tell. Uh, but yeah, they're, 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 they're committed to this, to this city. There's no thought of moving out to Mitchell or when, when we set up, there was, um, I was obviously Manchester based, um, but Thomas was based down in Cheltenham. Um, obviously, Cheltenham has, it, has its 
cybersecurity or whatever it is. And the initial plan was for Thomas to be run a technical team down there and for me to run a commercial team up here. Um, but once Thomas had come up to see Dish a few times, had some chats with the universities nearby, it just became so obvious, didn't it? It was, it was a conversation actually, I think, with one of the directors at GCHQ because they just moved a lot of their operations to, um, to Manchester. And he pointed out that so first of all, he told the sort of story about how they, you know, paid some consultancy to do a bunch of research, find somewhere where they've got good access to talent and a lot of diversity, and you know, paid them ridiculous amounts of money and loan the whole day. So moved to London, um, they couldn't afford London, so Manchester was second on the uh, on on the list. Um, but then he um, he pointed out that one of the things that they did highlight Manchester is one of the only places where you've got. You have five universities within a 45-minute commute. You've got about 10 universities within an hour and a half commute of, um, of the office. Um, and um, people are moving, particularly young people who are skilled, are moving into places like Manchester, whereas if you look at places like Cheltenham, you know, I don't want to talk about it, it's still, you know, still my hometown. Um, but people are just, people are keen to move away from those those kinds of areas um, at the moment. And when he pointed that out to me and I sort of looked at, you know, where my friends had gone and I looked at where I was talking to the people and I'm interviewing people for, for roles, I realised, yeah, it's not it's not even really going to take much thinking about it. I, I started looking at apartments the next day. Yeah. yeah. Of which there are many. And I could tell you some stories about the old Manchester where there were none and nobody went to the city centre. It's uh, maybe another day. <laughs> I think that just about rounds us off for the for the for the session. Um, thanks for thanks for coming, Andy. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for listening to the Cyber Talk podcast. <laughs>